And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next, cover to cover. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky. The noted novelist and screenwriter Richard Matheson passed away on June 23, 2013, at the age of 87. A television writer for the original Twilight Zone series and Star Trek, as well as several other television programs during the 50s and 60s, he was also the author of several novels which became films, including Bedtime Return, which was retitled Somewhere in Time, The Legend of Hell House, which was retitled Hell House, What Dreams May Come, and Stir of Echoes. He was also a short story writer par excellence. Matheson was considered a writer's writer and a master of the fantasy and science fiction genres, as well as a superb screenwriter. In February 1992, my former co-host Richard A. Lupoff and I visited Matheson at his home in Calabasas, California, and spoke to him at length about his career and his many projects. This interview has never been aired before. What brought you to, to writing? Uh, you wrote for uh, pulp magazines or the digest magazines in your early career, writing science fiction. What brought you to write that? Well, I was writing all my life. I lived in Brooklyn, and I had little stories and poems in the uh, Brooklyn Eagle when I was eight, nine years old. When I was 16, I wrote a novel. Uh, I wrote short stories all through my teen years. I never tried to do anything with it, though, until I got out of college. That was when I had my first sale. I was always a buff of fantasy. I read fantasy all my life, and I thought it was a fantasy story. It turned out, according to them, to be a science fiction story. Since there were about 30 or 40 science fiction magazines, and my mother raised a practical kid, I decided I would become a science fiction writer and boned up on all the uh, anthologies I could find and started writing it, even though I never really had any feeling for it, and uh, I haven't really done that much, as far as I can tell. The first story I saw was called Born a Man and Woman, and it created enough of a splash so that I was able to get an agent and go on from there. The novel was called The Years Stood Still. I was raised as a Christian scientist, and there was a story in the uh, in the textbook, uh, Science and Health, about some woman in her teen years who had fallen down a flight of steps and never aged, and so that when she was in her 50s and 60s, she still looked like she was uh, almost a teenager. So th- that was what I wrote the novel about. It was very lurid, very melodramatic, and uh, I don't think I could rework it and sell it. Your two first novels that were published were Someone is Bleeding and Fury on Sunday by Lion Books. It's paperback publisher published Jim Thompson as well. How did they come to be published? Well, I guess that's where my uh, my agent submitted them to, and there was quite a market in uh, original paperbacks in those days. Uh, someone is bleeding. Uh, the first chapter is is a almost a direct uh, account of how I met my wife on the beach in Santa Monica, and then it goes on to a much more melodramatic story. Uh, the second one is a, a very a uh, short period suspense piece, uh, which I wrote in three days, the novel, that is. I think they paid a $1,000 for each one, so that when I sold, 
I am legend to gold medal for 3,000. I thought I was really in the chips. Uh, I am legend, that came out in 1954. Did you have any idea at that point that it would be made not into one movie, but into two? Would that have boggled your mind at the time? Uh, I don't think it's been made into one movie yet. The first one was a very poor adaptation of it. The second one was so far removed from it that if you hadn't uh, seen the title on the screen, you would not have, have had any idea it came from my book. It's, it is yet to be made, and I've been approached many times through the years by people who want to make it, but it's so wrapped up in, in various kinds of litigations now that I doubt if it'll ever be done. Well, I wrote the original screenplay for uh, I Am Legend. I did it in England for Hammer Films, and then they told me at the time the censor wouldn't pass it. I thought they were just being like euphemistic because they didn't like the script. But later on, I found out that was literally true. The, the censor wouldn't pass it, and then Robert Lippert took it over over here and uh, at one point told me it was going to be directed by Fritz Lang, which turned out not to be the case. It was directed by Sidney Salko. And the second version, The Omega Man with Charlton Heston, did you have anything whatsoever to do with that? No, none whatever. Nothing. The novel you did after that was Shrinking Man, which became The Incredible Shrinking Man, the movie which you did work on. What do you think of that movie? Yeah, the novel, I wanted to call the novel Shrinking Man without the V in it. I wanted to make social commentary and refer to mankind's uh, shrinking uh, capacity to deal with his world and, and uh, victimization by it. But not only was the book The Shrinking Man, but then the movie, the, the producer decided to add incredible to the title as if it weren't incredible enough that a man is shrinking. I like it more now. At the time, I wasn't crazy about it. That's always been my reaction or my failure or whatever. Usually I always dislike, very rarely do I like a film made from what I've written the first time around. It's very rare. But then over time I mellow out and and I like it better. So I recognize it for what it is, Very a very unusual film for that period of time. What did you feel the movie lacked at the time? I wanted to have the uh, continuity be as it was in the book going back and forth in time i would have liked to see a lot more intense study of the, the man's relationship with his wife uh, as he got smaller and smaller because they did it in straight continuity and they wanted to get to the good stuff they just sort of almost glossed over it it wasn't it, they didn't go into it that much once they got in the cellar with with the really big effect then it was great we interviewed Jack Arnold a few years back, who was the director, and he told a story about using condoms for the water drops. The famous condom story, yes. <laughs> Were you there for any of the filming? Yeah, I watched I watched him shoot some of the scenes in the cellar. The poor guy who played the lead, they, he was almost electrocuted, he was almost drowned, he had bruises, he <laughs> really... And of course, I don't think he used a stuntman ever, and he was really banged around a lot. Arnold told us also that at the completion of that project, you and he had got along very well and had together talked about doing a sequel, The Shrinking Woman, which you had actually got as far as at least a written sketch. Is this true? Yeah, I don't recall that it had anything to do with our relationship, but just the producer, Albert Zugsmith, uh, since the picture had made so much money, wanted to do a sequel, and I wrote a script. I wrote a full shooting script, which was never shot. Did you have anything to do with the film eventually that was made, a Lily Tomlin film, The Shrinking Woman, or The Incredible Shrinking Woman? No, I'm glad to say I didn't. They spoke to me about writing a sequel, and I, in my naivete, thought that they were going to go back and do the book. Uh, and I again said to them, as I said to you before, well, I'd like to do it 
uh, in the way it's written, uh, jumping back and forth in time and really get into the characterization, uh, little did I know they were going to turn it into a comedy, which is okay. I mean, I think I could have written a better comedy than that. It really wasn't that funny. Richard Matheson, you wrote three other novels before you, it looks like you just went right into writing films for Roger Corman. Uh, is, is that pretty much what happened? I got so involved in doing television and motion pictures, and also we were raising four children, so the, the money was a lot better, so that's why I concentrated on that. You moved into television. How did that come about? Well, for years I had an agent out here. I don't remember who they were, but they never called, and I didn't know agents were supposed to call. And then we joined uh, an agency called Premager Stewart, which had Otto Premager's brother, and Malcolm Stewart, and all of a sudden, we got all these calls, and all this, this was Charles Beaumont and myself. We both joined it at the same time, and all of a sudden, we were going out and talking to people, which we had never done before. And uh, the, one of the first places we went, if not the first, was uh, to see the pilot of the Twilight Zone, and then we started submitting and became a part of that. Do you have much contact with Rod Serling? We would see him once in a while. We would socialize. Uh, but, of course, we always saw him when we had discussions of the stories and the scripts. He and the producer, Buck Houghton, Charles Beaumont and I wrote separately then, although we did collaborate when we first went into television. We collaborated on quite a few different shows. Did Serling have as much of an impact on the actual shows as today we think he did? Well, he wrote, I would say conservatively, about 80% of them, so obviously uh, he had to have an enormous impact on, on the texture of the show. Being a writer, he was very uh, supportive of writers, so I don't recall ever having to make, ever having had an outrageous demand made regarding the script. The satisfaction I ever had in Twilight Zone was maybe some of the casting or, or something like how it was done. The most famous uh, one that you wrote was also remade in the movie, which was Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Mm -hmm. Do you recall how you got the idea for that one? Yeah, I was on an airplane, and I was looking out, and uh, the clouds were all fluffy, and I thought, gee, it would be interesting if you saw a guy come skiing out of the sky, just like it was snow. And then I thought about it some more, and I thought, gee, what if, what if you looked out in the wing and there was a man out there? You know, and then from there, I naturally went into the gremlin idea and uh, built up a suspense. It was a, a novelette first. Did you work on the revised version as well? Yeah, yeah, I wrote the revised version as well. Originally, they were going to, it was going to be like a, at least they told me it was going to be a 10 or 12 minute filler. I never could understand how they could do that. And uh, then they told me Gregory Peck was going to be in it, so I was rewriting it to fit the character he had in 12 O'Clock High, the same man who goes on an airplane, and then that fell through, and then George, uh, one of the Australian director, Miller, took over, and he decided to just go back to square one, I mean, square a half, actually, because uh, he chose not to have the man being recovering from a mental breakdown, which I think is what adds the extra element to it. Uh, he just had the guy who was scared of flying, and, and Lithgow did a marvelous job of, you know, starting out at 100% of terror and then going on up from there. I don't know how he did it. And actually, the way it was done was, of course, superior, although I think I would match Bill Shatner's performance against that any time. I did like the monster on the wing a hell of a lot better because the, the monster in the early one, because they were on a budget, sort of looked like a, a woolly beer. 
Would you comment on the fact that those early, the first series Twilight Zone, the black and white, were obviously, if we look at them today, done for about 35 cents a piece, and yet they're immensely effective even though they're 30 years old? People always ask me why, and I say they're because they're interesting stories. Somebody was just quoted as saying story is the whole thing, and that's that's what I've been good at, telling an interesting story, and I think those are interest. Their best Twilight Zones are just very interesting stories that you want to you wonder what, what happens next, which of course is the essential need in, in any kind of presentation like that. That brings up the role of Serling that I mentioned before. If he was a writer and he gave both himself and other writers that kind of support, so the writer's concepts were the ones that were translated, you're talking about a very different world than producers and high concepts. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had, I don't know, maybe they do it now on certain series, but back then I think it was very unusual. We, we would have a three-day rehearsal before they shot. And with, you know, with the director, with the cast, we'd walk through the and the writer was there, which, again, was extremely unusual. I've, I've never had that experience again, except for on my movie Somewhere in Time. That's the only time I was ever asked to be on a film. And it, and it made a difference because as things needed to be adjusted, the writer was there to, to make the adjustment. And you got a continuity, a synchronicity of, of uh, attitude towards it during this rehearsal period. Many of those early Twilight Zone stories, other than the, the original stories by Serling himself, were based on existing science fiction or fantasy short stories, including many Richard Matheson stories, such as Third from the Sun. Is there a, a natural congruence between those, those old short stories and the 30-minute TV form? No, not necessarily. Uh, I don't. I didn't use too many of my stories in the beginning. Uh, Charles Beaumont used a lot of his. Uh, I don't know why. I preferred doing originals. I think it's better to do originals. I, I don't think converting uh, anything to film works as well as doing an original designed directly for it. They buy huge novels and then they then they say, well, we'll just use this one section of it. And you know, it's not the novel anymore the, the the closest proper length for a film a feature film would probably be a long novelette and it depends again on whether the writer is a visual writer or not now i happen to be a very visual writer when i write a short story i see it in my mind so it's the same thing as if i'm writing a script that's why a lot of my stories transfer easily to the visual form but some writers don't do that and then it would be more difficult you're listening to a 1992 interview with the late screenwriter and novelist Richard Matheson, who passed away in June 2013. I'm Richard Walensky, and I'm accompanied by Richard A. Lupoff. You also wrote for a number of other TV shows, including Have Gun, Will Travel, and Hitchcock. Did you ever have any contact with Hitchcock? The only contact I had with Hitchcock was when it looked like I had a chance to write the, the screenplay for The Birds. I thought I was going to meet with his representative and my representative. Neither of them showed up. So it was just me alone with Hitchcock. And I screwed myself out of a job with my opening remark, which was, I, I don't think you should show the birds too much, Mr. Hitchcock. <laughs> he said, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> and that was, that was the end of that. And yet, to this day, I think I'm right, because I think the most effective scene in the movie is when they're in the house and the birds are outside and you don't see them. You hear the sound. You see the beaks pecking through the door. She's up in that room. And She's got a blanket over her. They're spectacular, the bird scenes, but I don't think they're as 
they certainly don't capture the Daphne du Maurier story. And, and of course, I was naively thinking that he was going to adapt the Daphne du Maurier story. You wrote for many other TV series, one of which intrigues me. I found it in your credits, but I have no recollection of ever seeing it. Philip Marlowe. That was one of the things I did with Charles Beaumont. He and I, I guess, collaborated in about five or six different series. That was one of them. I don't even remember, don't even remember the story. Are there any stories or uh, episodes of any particular series other than Twilight Zone that really stick out in your mind as among your best work? Well, I was very happy at the time. Actually, I was happier at the time with the work I did on a script called Lawman, which was a Western series. I liked it. The producer, Jules Shermer, had been a producer, a film producer at 20th Century Fox, uh, approached it in a very intelligent way. It was a drawback because the, the lead actor was a little stiff. But they did it very well, and he had uh, a director, one of his main directors had worked with uh, well, this fellow who made the film in the South Seas. I was extremely happy with them. He was one of the few, like the Twilight Zone, he saw to it that they shot my scripts word for word. He never allowed them. Once he was happy with the script, he never allowed them to change a word. Two made-for-TV movies from 1971. One was Duel. Uh, that was the one that was put Steven Spielberg on the map. The other was The Night Stalker, which was considered one of the best made-for-television movies of all time. Well, Duel, uh, it was a novelette. In play. I had tried, for years, I had tried to interest uh, serious television producers in that idea, and they would always say, no, that's not enough for a story there. Uh, and so I finally gave up on it, wrote a novelette which was in Playboy. Then they got interested. In, and even then I thought, well, you, you can't just make a whole film out of a guy, even though there were only hour and a half films those days. Uh, you can't just have a film about a man being chased by a guy in a truck. Maybe you'd have to add the man's wife. And fortunately, the uh, the man who uh, produced it uh, and the man, the executive at uh, Universal knew better. So I did it pretty much as the, uh, as the story was written. And then... Uh, they couldn't cast it. They couldn't find. Again, there was Gregory Peck's name came up. You know, he's the one actor who I've <laughs> his name has come up many times, but I've never had him in anything I wrote. And uh, they had to shut down their series McLeod in order to get uh, Dennis Weaver. They couldn't get a director. I remember the producer George Eckstein saying, "Well, I've got I've cast a truck so far. That's all I've got." <laughs> then he said, "I remember him saying, well, they stuck me with some young.'" hotshot director here <laughs> you don't know obviously and he was steven was out in the desert shooting this thing and and i guess i was told that by the time they saw the footage they couldn't take him off it although they were kind of horrified by what was going on that's what i was told anyway all the disparate pieces they couldn't see how it was going to fit together and uh, it fit together very well what about night stalker a guy named Jeff Rice had written an unpublished novel, and, and ABC liked it, and so they called me in, and I met Dan Curtis and uh, did the script for it. The main alteration I made, a lot of the incidents were in the book, so it's a, it's a very interesting novel, which was published consequently. In the book, he's sort of a, a heavy Hungarian who believes in vampires, and I didn't think that would work, so I turned it into a more of a front-page atmosphere with the conflict between the editor and the wisecracking reporter who of course doesn't believe it at all and has to be 
convinced. And uh, I didn't know it was going to turn out so good. I mean, there was a story which they had published about when my wife and my kids and I were, were on a camping trip and we stopped in Las Vegas to watch it. And I saw the script and it was so it was like a technicolor dream that, you know, all the colored pages, which to me meant rewriting. And I thought, oh, my God, they've changed everything. There's not a damn thing left. And so I got so upset and enraged that I left, which apparently ticked Darren McGowan off at the time. Later we made peace. But then when I saw it on television, uh, you know, they had added a scene here and there, but it was still pretty much what I had written. Beautifully done. Uh, Dan is wonderful at casting. He has always been great at casting. And it was, it was cast with a lot of marvelous performers. I read Hell House last week and immediately thereafter watched the movie on video. What are your comments there? Well, that was another one where I was extremely disappointed later on you you sort of forget the connection between the book and the movie and you just sort of try to look at the movie or you come to look at the movie as its own entity and with that in mind it's not it's not that bad but uh, if you look at it as a direct representation of the book then that's when you get disappointed and around just after the, this film was made the exorcist came out and the and the horror film became like an a product rather than a b product and I think that if I had held on to it, uh, if I'd known I'd have held on to it, I think it could have been a much more prestigious type of film. I, I, at, the, at the time, my dream cast was uh, Elizabeth Taylor and her husband Richard Burton to play the female psychic and the male psychic, and Rod Steiger and his wife to play the parapsychologist and his wife, and you know, and then a really top class director and and top class effects and i think it would have and also they sort of just hinted at the sexuality of the book which is rather extreme and they at that time couldn't do it but shortly afterward anything was allowed you've mentioned beaumont any number of times we were chatting before uh, we went on the air about fantasy science fiction writers of a certain era and it seems that there was a group, Beaumont and yourself, Richard Matheson, Theodore Sturgeon and Ray Bradbury, not only had a certain similarity of attitude and technique, but also your careers are constantly intertwining. Would you comment on that? Yeah, well, there were others of us, too, in the group. There was George Clayton Johnson, who also wrote for The Twilight Zone. There was uh, Ray Russell, who was an editor for Playboy who bought some of my early stories and then finally just became a writer on his own. Ray Bradbury, of course, was was the grand maestro of all of us. He was our inspiration and we all imitated him, you know, outrageously in the beginning before we got our own voice. We saw each other, we socialized, uh, and Ted Sturgeon was also considerably older than I was. I remember when I first met him, he was working for Time magazine or something. And I was just, I had just sold my first story, Born a Man and Woman. And he didn't have a beard. He was not the sort of the colorful character he became later on. I have always felt that at his best, nobody wrote fantasy or science fiction better than Ted Sturgeon did. He did some brilliant, absolutely brilliant stuff. There was a very close contact between Charles Bowman and myself because we, our children are somewhat of the same age. Uh, we socialized with them. Our wives knew each other. We ex we visited each other and uh, saw each other a good deal and were influential on each other. Like when when he wrote his first straight novel, The Intruder, I wrote my first straight novel, The Beardless Warriors, and we always had this sort of friendly competition going on between us. 
you came back to the novel uh, with Vengeance in 1971 and put together three very, very excellent fantasy novels. The first is the horror novel, novel Hell House, and then What Dreams May Come and Bid Time Return. Hell House deals with spiritualism. Had you done any research into that prior to that, or was did the research into spiritualism come out of the idea of writing a haunted house story? I'd been a reader of that subject matter for probably 25 years before that. I have a, quite a library, and it's really, I think, a story of parapsychology rather than spiritualism, although the medium in it is one of the mediums as a spiritualist. No, I, I knew a lot, and I did a lot of research, and I, and I think it's pretty accurate as far as you know, my, my main... The main thing that made this engine run was electromagnetic radiation, and I think to this day I think that's pretty much the case in psychic phenomenon. Bedtime Return came right after that, and then came What Dreams May Come, which is based upon an, a great deal of research in the area of life after death. Did you have any kind of axe to grind in there, or you, were you just trying to tell a story? I mean, after redoing, doing research from all those books and having read uh, all, you know, the years before that, I had no doubt and don't have any doubt that there is a continuity after what we call death. So uh, I just, you know, as I think I indicated in the uh, introduction, the only thing that is made up of this are the characters. Everything else comes from research books. I didn't make up any of it. There's some allusions to writing for Hollywood in it. Is, is that autobiographical? Obviously, since it's in first person, the character is pretty largely going to be me. That would be inevitable. That book turned into a bit of a cult item and became very hard to locate. Did you have any idea over the years how many people were looking for that book and trying to find it? One reason I, I finally talked Jeff Conner into doing it, he was going to do these three suspense novels first and he has them all in, in galleys and everything and i said i've got i showed him i sent him a list of all the people who had written to me about i've gone to the library i've asked every bookstore in town on and on and on and these people there are so many people there who want both of those books so it would be make sense uh, to do that and, and they sort of tie together at least i tied them together in my introduction by saying that one is is about a love that transcends time and the other one is about a love that transcends death do you believe that time travel is possible uh not literally where you jump into a shiny machine and then you go back i think mentally uh it must be because uh People have predicted the, the future with great accuracy. They have looked back into the past with great accuracy. Uh, psychics who hold, have, will hold a stone will describe the dinosaurs that were, were prevalent at the time that stone was first uh, existed on Earth. I think it's all, it's all through the mind, which is what I chose to, uh, to do in my, in my motion picture, that you, you make yourself. And when I was down, at, I wrote it at the Coronado Hotel, a lot of that. And I was all by myself. And I, I talked, I psyched myself into it so much that I, I could almost swear that I, and that place has an atmosphere of the past that I, I just sort of really psyched myself into thinking about any moment now I'm going to pop back. <laughs> Why'd you set it in Michigan and not in uh, San Diego? At one time, uh, a friend and I were talking about making it a television film. We went down to the Coronado Hotel and we were looking at everything. But everything around the Coronado Hotel is so modern. Whereas everything, uh, when they look for a hotel, everything in Michigan fits. They shot the whole thing on this little tiny island, except for a couple of days in Chicago. The entire film 
was shot there, including every scene. What do you think of the movie Somewhere in Time? I like it. I like it. You know, as always, I'm sure it could be improved, but it's certainly a cult movie. It struck a chord. There are certain films that strike a chord, you know, not enough for it to have made a lot of money, although it certainly made a profit. But there is a, a large following for it and a very devoted following. Do you feel that that then is your most successful or most significant work? No, I would say What Dreams May Come is the most significant. Well, at the time, Good Time Return was the best written, although this Western that just came out, I think, is awfully well written, too. Journal of the Gun Years. You've been listening to a 1992 interview with the late screenwriter and novelist Richard Matheson, along with my former co-host, Richard A. Lupoff. I'm Richard Walensky for Open Book. For more information about this show, go to bookwaves.com, where you'll also find an extended version of this interview. KPFA's Summer Fun Drive begins Monday, July 22nd through Friday, August 2nd. Help support listener-sponsored radio with your generous financial contribution. And if you have free time, please come on down to the station and help us in the phone room. You'll meet on-air personalities, like-minded listeners, and we'll provide you with carbohydrates, strong coffee, and some unexpected surprises. KPFA is located at 1929 Martin Luther King Jr. Way, near the corner of University Avenue in Berkeley. The phone room opens 6.30 a.m. Monday through Friday and 7 a.m. Saturday and Sunday. You can donate securely online at www.kpfa.org. And thank you for your support. Next meeting of KPFA's local...